Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms and also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Afri. Afri is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. Today we have a new episode and we have a great storyteller. I have the pleasure to welcome you, Nate, to Urbanistica podcast. Hello and welcome. Hi there. Great to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, it's been a nice start to the new year and uh, we actually have some nice weather today, so I'm in a good mood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Happy, happy to see you. Last time we met in Pontevedra, right? That's right. Yeah, that was a, an amazing conference and just a great opportunity to kind of reconnect with the whole placemaking movement. Yeah, yeah. So how is the weather now? Like it's sunny or? Yeah, it's it's great right now. Uh, we've, we've had kind of a weird winter, you know, <laughs> like a little disturbing, but we haven't had like as much snow or cold. Yeah. It's been kind of rainy and gray. So yeah, you know, now it feels like spring is already starting. Uh, so I'm, 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 we'll I'm, figure. I'm a bit jealous now because like out here in Sweden, it's dark and rainy, so... <laughs> right. <laughs> in, by the way, in which uh, state are you now? Uh, so I live in New Jersey, uh, yeah. right on the New Jersey-Pennsylvania border on uh, the Delaware River in a small town called Lambertville. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's 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 quite tiny, but it's, you know, perfect model of like a very walkable small town, you know, you live close to the downtown. There's lots of things within walking distance in terms of like food or drink or mm. you know daily necessities too like a pharmacy and groceries yeah, so yeah. it's great amazing also uh, congratulations for being like one year executive director how does it feel thank you yeah thank you thank you yeah it's been uh, it's been a, a, a gr steep learning curve but uh, but I, you know <laughs> it's been great as well i mean i think we have a we have such a good team and i'm i'm lucky to be uh, doing this with a co-executive director, uh, Kelly Verrill, who's yeah. been with the organization even longer than I have and brings so much experience to the table too. That's awesome. So let's start with you. You are our storyteller. How would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So yeah, my name's Nate Storing. Uh, yeah, I'm the co-executive director of Project for Public Spaces. And uh, I've really spent most of my career trying to make all these complex urban issues more accessible to the public. Mm. Um, because, you know, there are so many complications when we think about our planning systems, the way development gets done, public space, uh, all of these things that have a huge impact on our lives. But uh, the vast majority of people don't really understand the, me the mechanics of how it works, uh, feel like they don't have any power in the situation. And so um, I've, I've, you know, I started my career really trying to uh, make some of those things a little bit more transparent through exhibitions and events. Um, and, uh, and then when I moved to New York, I got a job at Project for Public Spaces, uh, <laughs> doing communications at first, communications and research. 
Um, and so that's this has been an amazing place to kind of continue doing that work in a completely different way and yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, a, a lot more hands-on um, because we're really actually doing projects out in public space. Yeah. So how many years have you been now? In, uh, yeah, EDS? I've been... I've been there for about seven years, I think, a little over seven years. Wow! Um, so it's been it's been a moment. <laughs> <laughs> but what what made you come into this like public spaces, uh, urban uh, planning and design, community engagement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I so my hometown um, has this really strange story, um, <laughs> or at least I thought it was strange when I was young. Um, <laughs> We had this mall downtown, right? Uh, yeah. You know, which is not uncommon in in the in North America. Um, you know, I'm originally from Canada, mm. and so um, we had this mall, and I kind of got fascinated with it, as lots of teenagers do. Yeah, you know, yeah. because it was kind of a dead mall, right? It wasn't, you know, it didn't have its uh, anchor store anymore. A lot of the a lot of the businesses weren't doing well, and mm. there's a lot of weird stuff there. So you know, sometimes I would go there and hang out, and over time, I started to to learn a little bit more about the story there. And apparently, um, you know, in I think the 60s, late 60s, maybe, um, they actually tore down the city hall and the and the hundred year old like farmers market to build wow. the shopping center. Wow. And, you know, the, then the thing I found out even more was that a lot of cities in Ontario have this similar story where like mm. a big chunk of the downtown was torn down. Uh, and a mall was built, and it turns out it was actually like an urban renewal program that was run by the province. So cities got money to to actually make these transformations happen. Yeah. Um, but the extra weird part in my hometown is that it was a huge controversy, and they actually held a referendum, uh, and the majority of people who voted voted for it. Okay. So they so they actually they actually agreed that that this yeah, should happen. Yeah. So that's part of what got me so fascinated with you know, democracy in the city, I guess, because, mm, mm. you know, there was some kind of democratic process, but it didn't end up being a good decision. You know, we don't know, I, I can't remember, but I don't think like, you know, the majority of people actually even voted. voted so, yeah, you know, yeah. it was, it's kind of like, they're using democracy maybe to just kind of push something through. So that was, that was kind of what got me really fascinated with cities mm. and, you know, revitalization and yeah, yeah. Uh, and then also like what happens when it goes wrong and how do we kind of live with the results of bad decisions? Because we have a lot of those in our city. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And and sad story also. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing that's also amazing about it is like that mall yeah. has continued to evolve over mm, time. Mm, mm. It's like it's kind of like a scar that's sort of healing because it's, you know, now there's there are a lot more civic uses there. There's like a you know, the farmer's market was actually in the par parking garage of this mall for years, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a there's a community college there. You mm -hmm. know, the the local newspaper for a long time had their offices there. And so it it just kind of changed into just part of the city. It healed because yes. cities yeah. are kind of like nature in some ways. They have a, an amazing capacity for mm -hmm. doing that. Interesting. So, so can you give us some like highlights about uh, your work with PPS or like from the last year? What did you achieve? Yeah, absolutely. So last year, um, we, you know, we do a variety of different activities. So uh, we, like I said, we do on the ground projects in public spaces. We also provide training, uh, we do conferences, and then we produce a lot of materials on our website that are sort of resources for people doing work in public space. So uh, last year, we, we helped transform 20 public spaces uh, all around North America. Wow. Um, we uh, trained 400 people. Uh, over 400 people actually from uh, 30 countries around the world 
uh, both in our placemaking uh, training. And then we also have a training that's focused on public markets specifically, mm -hmm. since there's lots of like technical details in, <laughs> in running a market. Um, and then, yeah, we, we published 15 articles, uh, especially we, we did a whole series about markets last year that was really focused on sort of the principles of like how you make a city uh, mm -hmm. have a really thriving market system, uh, not just a one mar one, one off yeah. market. Um, and through that, we reached about uh, 600,000 people uh, through our website last year. So, wow. um, yeah, it's been it's been quite a year and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, really excited for what's coming this year. Good job. So is, is the focus a lot uh, on, on, on U.S. Or, or no, you also have a project or people from other countries? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we um, so typically we uh, for our projects, we tend to be mostly focused on North America. Mm. And that's partly lo just logistical. It's easier yeah. when you're in the same time <laughs> zone. Uh, but, sure. you know, also from the placemaking standpoint, you want to make sure that um, you are culturally sort of attuned also, to what's going yeah. on uh, mm. when you're working with communities. So um, if we have a great partner in another country, then then that can sometimes work out really, really well. Mm. Uh, but we do tr try to make sure we're very conscious of, of what kinds of projects we take on in terms of that. Yeah. Um, so but then in terms of our trainings and events, uh, we, we tend to embrace, you know, people from all around the, the world um, and really try to put together programs that that can speak to different contexts. Yeah. That's amazing. No, really good job. And, and shout out to the entire team. You're really doing a great job. I, I follow you on uh, on LinkedIn. And every time oh, I nice. see a post, that's uh, so yeah, it's really good uh, content. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And, like I said, we have an amazing team um, yeah, yeah. that has a whole wide variety of backgrounds. I sometimes <laughs> joke we're kind of a, an island of misfit toys, <laughs> people, you know, because we have uh, designers, we have planners, we have uh, you know, people with like a, more of a sociological yeah. background, mm. you know, I don't have a, a planning background uh, myself. Mm. Right. So, mm. um, but you know, we all kind of felt a little bit out of place in our, in our field <laughs> and kind of found then, yeah. yes, is this place where we really found other people that shared our values. I also like, this is, uh, I believe this is what we need when we develop cities, like uh, people from different perspective, mm -hmm. instead of like just uh, traffic planners or, or architects or urban planners like with all respect to, to all professions but we need this the multidisciplinary totally agree yeah exactly when we're, whenever we uh you know use our placemaking process in a project that's a huge emphasis mm -hmm. is making sure that we have a wide variety of perspectives at the table and especially uh, the folks who might be who might have an effect on the project, yeah. uh, but aren't like the core people. Like traffic engineers are a perfect example for like a park. Um, mm. It's like you know, <laughs> like yeah. What? Of course, you think of the parks department, <laughs> but it's like yeah, there are streets on all sides yeah, exactly. of it. So how are mm. people going to cross the street, and is it safe, yeah. and is it comfortable? So you really want to make sure you have all those perspectives represented. True. Uh, do you have like um, people related to tech because what I see in like at least in Sweden a lot of like urban tech people working with the tech and urban development do you have it mm -hmm. also we don't actually have anyone on staff that's really focused on tech but mm -hmm. uh, we've actually been working with uh, Niantic um, which is the company that produces uh, uh, they produce the technology behind Pokemon mm. Go and uh, <laughs> lots of other really cool uh, games and so yeah. we've been uh, we've been working with them uh, on a project in Atlanta, which, is, which we're really excited about. That's uh, revitalizing a, a transit plaza, but we're actually hoping to to kind of learn from them about about some of the sort of uh, capabilities they have around augmented yeah. reality and, and all of mm. that. So mm. that's been an exciting project. That's interesting, yeah. And when we met uh, in Pontevedra, uh, we talked about uh, uh, your new book. 
Yeah. And uh, I I love that we hear more about it now and uh, like with the title hyper hyper local place governance and uh, first tell me like the background of 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 starting writing the book like the idea and why yeah absolutely so um this book really came out of a collaboration that um project for public spaces has had with the brookings institution for the last actually for the last seven years it was (laughs) one of the reasons i was hired was to work with uh with uh them on this this collaboration it really started Mm -hmm. focused on innovation districts um and and kind of understanding how does innovation happen at that hyper local level at the the scale of a neighborhood Mm -hmm. um and what what are the kinds of um characteristics of of a district that help that happen um so it started there, and what one of the things that we realized was a key ingredient was uh, an organization that really manages the district, and the details of how that organization works had a big impact on on whether or not a district could be successful. Um, and so that that was sort of the the nugget that got us really interested in this topic of what we call place governance. Yeah. Um, and since then, it's sort of expanded beyond innovation districts to look at all sorts of different kinds of organizations in residential neighborhoods, in uh, downtowns, other kinds of, of, say, commercial districts. Um, and uh, this book is really the culmination of that research. Yeah, yeah. And when you when you say innovation, what do you mean by that? What kind of innovation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of the innovation we were looking at was um, situations where a company would be... Uh, taking research that that may be produced at say a university and then putting it into application Mm. Um, and so that could be all sorts of different fields um, and have all sorts of different impacts but we're really looking at how does that those sorts of partnerships uh arise how does knowledge get transferred you know um sometimes also it could be research and development that's happening within a company or a startup um, so again, like often these districts have a whole ecosystem of different actors, right? Yeah. That might be, you know, a university, particular departments at a university, startups, bigger companies that have research and development labs. Um, so it was, that was sort of the focus, but it's really, uh, the point was sort of creating new goods and services exactly. uh, and, and mm-hmm. using that as a way to really drive the economy. Yeah. And when you when you start to uh, write a book, you need like the financial part, you need like uh, how to say information. How do you got all of this together and then start writing? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, so, I mean, in this case, we like I said, we had sort of a lot of experience working on this research together over the years. Uh, mm. But then we also had a lot of questions. And so I think the first the first step was really figuring out some of the key questions that we wanted to answer. And yeah. then we were really lucky that we were uh, we're really sort of curating a book of different authors, so okay. we didn't have to have all the answers, thankfully. <laughs> um, and and we were able to really tap into some smart individuals who have been you know studying specific parts of the this this issue for years um, to write different chapters about the book. Mm. But is it easy like to have different authors and then you 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 how to say uh, collect from them and then you need to make sure that the story aligns and so on. Yeah, I mean that it definitely takes a lot of a lot of planning in advance. So I think mm. part of the way we did that was really making sure that the um, uh, the brief for each chapter was very clear. So what okay. was the question we're trying to answer? Mm. What's the length? You know, what kinds of uh, materials are we looking for to be included? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was very important. And then we had a lot of touch points with the authors throughout the process as well. Um, you know, including it was this was all happening during the pandemic. So a lot <laughs> of it was virtual uh, and and emails back and forth. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but yeah, that was I, th- I think that was a lot of it was just setting it all up at the very beginning yeah. and thinking about the overall balance of, of what which voices we had. Yeah, but do you need to have like a lot of information about each chapter or no? Just like um, an overall image and then the author will give you more details. Yeah, so I think we um, we definitely had sort of somewhere in between where we we knew what the, the key question was. Mm. We knew we had some hunches about what we thought, you know, the answers might be. Uh, and then part of the process was also finding uh, researchers and practitioners that that really align with that kind of uh, approach to answering the question. Yeah. So that was sort of the in-between part, I guess, was they brought a lot, of, of course, to the table in terms of their research and, and experience. Mm. Um, but also we were looking for folks that that could kind of align with the the questions and, yeah. and approaches that we were thinking of. Very interesting. And and be, be, before we're going to talk about like the content, the governance, uh, can you define for me and for listeners like um, a place and a field? <laughs> Yes, yeah, place in a field. So, um, you know, in terms of a place, um, we're really in the book. We're really talking about uh, an area that's smaller than a city um, that has sort of a meaningful collection of assets. That's super vague, but basically, like, we could be like a a neighborhood or a district. Could be a little smaller than that too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the key thing is that people kind of have to see it as something coherent. So, you know, people understand a neighborhood Mm -hmm. as a particular area, right? Um, Sometimes it might be smaller than that. Maybe it's like a, Mm -hmm. you know, could be like an office park or something like that as well. Uh, But there is a, a, you know, with place, there's uh, meaning is always a really important part of the equation. So that's, that's sort of the way we're defining it in the book. Um, And you know, it's important to define that because, you know, of course, the key term that we're talking about is place governance. Yeah. And so what we're really looking at is how do decisions get made about places, about these, mm. uh, you know, at the smaller scale than the city, because yeah. there's no municipal government at that scale exactly. Um, and depending on the, the country you live in, especially the systems may be wildly different. But in the U.S., a lot of those decisions are made by uh, nonprofits you know, that have their own governance systems, mm. uh, quasi-governmental organizations that like most people don't even understand <laughs> how they work or what the governance yeah. is. Um, so that's that's one of the reasons we wanted to write about the book or write this book was to really dig into uh, all this sort of opaque stuff that happens at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a field. So uh, when we're talking about a field in this book, we're, we're mostly talking about an area of study. So, you know, um, like for example science is a field right or particularly like biology is a field Mm. um and you know i I think the important thing that we're trying to do here is try to say like a lot of these organizations have been studied in isolation so like you know there are people who uh research or or are practitioners uh in the business improvement district world Mm. right and it's it's very well developed and there's lots of there's lots written about that um but what we're trying to do is say actually like business improvement districts, community development corporations, parks conservancies, mm. uh, you know, neighborhood associations, all of these different types of organizations, you can actually look at them all together okay. as, as sort of a field of study. Mm. Um, and they, they all have something to do with place governance, right? That's, the, that's a main part of their, 
um, the way they work as organizations is that they're make, helping to make decisions and care for places at, at the scale below the city. Yeah. So, and, and what, what is place go governance? Yeah. So I, I think probably the easiest way to define it is just, it's the way that decisions get made about uh, places at the, at the lower level than the city. Hmm. Um, and the way that works is, is complicated in, in that, you know, for a nonprofit, for example, they typically have a board. Um, yeah. And so the board makes a lot of decisions, but the staff actually, you know, speaking as someone who works also, in a nonprofit, yeah. the staff makes a lot of decisions too, <laughs> right? And so a lot of the decisions that get made are actually kind of informal. They're not, they don't go through some kind of like uh, very formal democratic process where we have these people represented mm. and these people who don't. Um, a lot of decisions get made just for practical reasons. And yeah. so trying to understand how those decisions get made um, is is a good way to um, investigate like whether a neighborhood or a district or a public space is serving the general public or not, or mm. is it serving a particular part of the general public or not? Mm. Um, and trying to investigate some of the, the inequalities that might happen, uh, but also um, the ways that these organizations can combat inequality too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so like, these like the, the different let's say i actors build a kind of ecosystem right yeah exactly mm -hmm. um so and we use that language a lot through the book and part of the point there is just that um these organizations don't really operate in isolation they connect with each other okay. um and that that could mean being like you know having just a partnership with another organization you know, the jurisdictions that they're responsible for often overlap. So like mm. in one neighborhood, you might have three organizations that are all working at the neighborhood scale mm. and responsible for different things. Yeah. Uh, they also interact with government um, and with citizens. And so all of that, you know, when you start to imagine what that looks like, uh, it, you can imagine it as these nodes with all of these lines connected, mm. to, you know, um, and you start to really see that it is this ecosystem of different actors that all have an influence on places mm. but do they like you mentioned now like they they uh, they have contact with with each other and so on but do they work only with the same kind of organization as they are or they expand their collaboration with different organizations like commercial let's say and, and others yeah that's a great question so often uh i would say that probably more often than not there are different types of organizations that they're collaborating with directly um often to complement whatever they're able to do. Yeah. So, you know, uh, again, like if you think about a business improvement district um, or a neighborhood association, they have very specific responsibilities that they're uh, allowed to do and able to do. And uh, different public agencies, like say the parks department or the department of transportation or whoever, uh, we, you know, they're working in, mm. in concert with them to say, make a street, uh, improve a street. Um, and they may work very well together or they may not work very well together, <laughs> but uh, they're sort of complementing each other in terms of their responsibilities. Mm. Um, you know, I think one of the other things that often happens with these organizations is that uh, you'll start, and this happens all the time in public space, you'll notice a problem and then you start tugging on the thread and you realize that it's connected to all of these other things <laughs> and all of these other people. And, uh, and, Often you then say, "Oh, wait. Well, we don't have we don't have the knowledge or the ability yeah. to address that problem." Mm. And so then you have to find a partner. Mm. Um, and so that's, I think, a lot of how these sorts of uh, collaborations happen yeah. as well. But it, like in the U.S., like if, if from this study and writing the book, 
do you see like there is a specific top three organization that have the power in the decision or owning the or, or deciding mm-hmm. it's a good it's a really that's a tough question i think it depends on how you look at it so you know um one of the one of the sort of largest types of organizations is uh these private neighborhood associations mm-hmm. homeowners associate associations yeah there's you know, ten, tens of thousands of them in, in the United States, a huge wow. number, yeah, and they're yeah. growing every day. And so from that standpoint, uh, they may be, if you're looking at the United States as a, as a whole, they may be probably the most powerful type of organization like this. Mm. Um, but they're like very, they, they're responsible for a very specific yeah. area. Geographical area, yeah. Right. And they typically are residential areas that um, are all homeowners and are, um, that, that people opt into. So from that standpoint, they're kind of isolated, but there's a lot of them. And they and they also have a lot of power within that jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, you know, probably the next one of the next biggest uh in terms of just numbers is business improvement districts. Mm. And they're interesting because they vary a lot um from city to city, from state to state. Mm. Um, and but they and, and they can have a fair amount of power, but they they often don't have a lot of power. Uh it depends on how big they are and and what the rules are locally and all of that. True. Um so, but but they're often responsible for very centrally located important nodes in the city, whether it's mm. the downtown or another commercial area uh, that might be sort of the social center and the the place where you get groceries and the place where you work and all of that. Mm. Um, so they often have uh, some influence over a very important part of the city. Mm. Um, so you know that's that's that. But then the of course government uh has a huge role as well and public public agencies play an important role mm. as well in place governance. Yeah. And they they ultimately have probably the most power of anyone. Yeah. Yeah. But who benefits from like place uh, governance? Especially I'm thinking about like this what's in it for the city. Yeah, good question. So, I think, you know, with um with the city probably you know, a, a lot of the history of place governance, when you look at it in the United States, a lot of scholars have focused on the sort of the 50s to the 80s, let's say, mm-hmm. where um, cities were really struggling financially um, because you had white flight um, of, uh, you know, people, homeowners who had choice who were white, fl- you know, fleeing to the suburbs and leaving uh, other folks downtown. And yeah. what happened there is the tax base uh, in those central areas disappeared, right? It lowered significantly, and cities uh, were strapped for cash and looking for ways to reduce their costs. Mm. And so part of what happened there was the federal government started providing funding for specific kinds of programs. And so you get things like community development corporations coming out of that. Um, Meanwhile, you also have uh, new legislation allowing for business improvement districts Mm. that arise around this time as well. And so the initial sort of uh, reason why cities were attracted to these, I think, was partly just that they didn't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. And so this was a, you know, to the, from their their perspective, this was a more efficient way to provide some of these services uh, than what they could do at the time. Yeah. Um, but I think what I would say is that over time, I think one of the biggest benefits that I I see is that you now have a team of people that is specifically responsible for just that place, right? Um, typically like, you know, uh, municipal departments, they're responsible for the whole city. They have to be. Yeah, and yeah. so 
a parks department may be responsible for hundreds of parks in the city, and they really are trying to provide fairly even service across across the whole uh, city. And they think of it in that way of providing. So, you know, they, they say, are, are thinking, well, okay, so we have X number of pools to sort of distribute <laughs> across the parks. Yeah. So it's going to go here, here, and here. So it's sort of a collection of um, services and amenities that they're sort of spreading out like peanut butter. And I think that, you know, that's, that's great to provide a, a baseline uh, because it ensures that, you know, if it's being done properly, it ensures that there's some equity across the city. That's really important. But what these these smaller organizations are able to do is really hone in on one park mm, and say, yeah. like, I, I, you know, and actually like observe what's going on, engage mm. the surrounding community and provide a level of care that's almost like a parent rather than, uh, you know, like designing a product or so. So I think that that's really the huge benefit. And the, the major inequality is that many places don't have those organizations. Mm. Um so often they are concentrated in downtowns, in uh, you know wealthier neighborhoods, and so that's one of the big questions: is how do you how do you actually spread it out a little bit more? But I think that's one of the major benefits: is the potential to have mm. this this really focused attention on one place and uh, engaging a whole community in the process of yeah. improving it, like uh, creating more quality, exactly in, in a specific and specificity. Uh, yeah, yeah. But is there like a when when you study the different organizations and so on, is there like a missing kind of uh, organization that we need, or no? Like within this ecosystem, we have everything we need. Yeah, that's that's another good one. So I feel like there are there's a wide variety of organizations as as it is, yeah. and I think that we have a lot of tools at our disposal to mm-hmm. um, to do this. I think that. The challenge is sort of recombining them in in a variety of mm. ways to make sure that um, the organizations that do exist are doing the, the best job they possibly can, and then also trying to figure out how do you fund this in places that don't uh, don't currently mm. have them. So, you know, I'm, I'm relying a lot on business improvement districts, but for example, they uh, the way that they fund themselves, one of the ways is that they're able to levy property taxes, yeah. typically. Uh, on um, commercial property owners in the area that they serve. And that's that's allowed through the government. Mm-hmm. And so um, in places that have very like limited commercial value, mm-hmm. that might not really be, uh, a, that might not be enough to actually run an organization. So mm-hmm. then, you know, should the government be providing funding for an organization like that? Um, you know, are there other kinds of financial mechanisms that could be used to to provide that? I think that those those questions are really the ones that that's the biggest gap, I think, is that there, we need more innovation around trying to make this an accessible to more people. Yeah, but I think in the US, you're like, uh, how to say, smart in creating this different kind of uh, collaboration models. I mean, compare now to Sweden, you know, like we always look <laughs> to, at the US and see what you're doing and so on, like three different or four different organizations create a model to, to, to take care of an area. So there, there is always a potential to form a kind of financial model, right? Yeah, I think I think so. I, I think what I would say is the grass is always greener because a lot of folks <laughs> in the U.S. also look at European models and say, you know, why couldn't government be doing more of this? And say, mm. you know, like uh, yeah, I, I believe, yeah. you know, when we did our, our conference in Amsterdam, mm. I believe one of the things I was learning is that they kind of have district managers within government. Yeah, and 
So like having just different models like that, I think uh, could be interesting as well. But I, I think a lot of this is probably going to start with government making the make, taking the initiative yeah. to really understand the whole landscape. This mm -hmm. is a big argument in the book is just getting a grasp on all of the different organizations that are doing this. What are the gaps and what what role could they play in changing policy, providing funding or, or bringing people to the table yeah. um, to, to really improve the situation? Yeah. Usually, usually in the podcast, when we talk about like a challenge or a problem or an idea, I ask who is responsible to make this happen. Mm, yeah. Uh, so you started now like talking about it's it's the city, right? The gov government. Yeah, I think so. I think I think you know at the end of the day, it's going to be this whole ecosystem again. <laughs> yes. Going back to that idea of actors, but I think that it has to start with government because they really have the power to change the whole ecosystem. They're the forester, right? They're the, yeah. they, they have that, uh, they can kind of create the environment that the ecosystem grows in. Mm. And so if, if, you know, it's growing really well over here, but not over there, they are the ones that have the power to try to uh, change that. Yeah. I think it's, I, I, I think also like, uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, we, we elected how to say we voted. Mm-hmm. And it's like they are part of this uh, democratic process. Like you start your story about like uh, this uh, democratical process and so on. So I believe also like they are the voice of people and they yeah. should really take the lead in, in fixing or in, in helping fixing a problem, for instance. Right. Yeah, I, exactly. I agree. And I think, um, I think that, you know, all, there are also a lot of public agencies that uh, have a, a direct role again mm. in, in working with this ecosystem and none of it's very coordinated right now. Um, one of the big news st stories in New York these days is that we just got um, a new director of the public realm for the very first time, there's wow. going to be a director of the public realm and a lot of excitement here for that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but you know, one of the big things that they're going to be trying to do is just, again, take <sighs> stock of, of the whole ecosystem mm. and try to figure out like, how is it that these organizations currently are working with government? Mm. How do you make it more efficient, more effective, mm. Mm. all of that? So, you know, there there are there's the elected officials and then there's like the the civil servants all all are going to play a really important role I think in in making this even better. True. And 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 like the this ecosystem are there like uh, clear channels or platforms so they can so it's they are like how to say the organization or component within this ecosystem are connected or not? There is like not really a formal way or formal channels. Right. That's one of the biggest challenges, I think, is that there it is very ad hoc right now. Is mm. that you know some of the, the the really outstanding examples are all about these connections, but they're not. But they're usually the exception and not the rule. Mm. Um, so you know, even just bringing together all of the organizations of one kind uh, and the government agencies yeah. that work with them is a huge challenge and mm. and it, we're not doing it very well right now so i think mm. finding ways to make those convenings happen and, and like you said clarify the channels that those communications can happen that's going to be a huge challenge moving forward what are like let's say if we if you can point like three key keys to make this happen like to 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 make this ecosystem like really work together yeah well i think i think that definitely one of the first steps is just um mapping out the ecosystem mm -hmm. you know i as from what we could tell yeah pretty much no city and no state has an up-to-date map of mm. these organizations what areas they're responsible for 
there for a, a, a brief moment, I'm not sure if it's still going actually, but there was a program, I think by the US Department of Agriculture, believe it or okay. not, to map these kinds of stewardship organizations uh, within cities. Yeah. But they only did a handful of cities. And it's the closest thing I've seen to what I'm thinking of. Mm. Um, but once you know that, you know who needs to be invited to the table, mm. you know who's responsible for what areas, you know which areas don't have a lot of organizations. You know, you know the different types of organizations. Like, I think just understanding that better is a really important baseline. Mm. Um, I do think having someone who is responsible for this, um, like a director of the public realm, uh, I think that that's a really great step in the right yeah. direction as well. Um, and then I think, you know, once you sort of have a good stock of what's going on, another really important lever for change is looking at uh, enabling legislation, okay. which is, you know, this is where we get into the real opaque <laughs> stuff in city government and state government too in the US. Yeah. But, um, you know, for example, uh, a like some of these organizations are allowed to exist uh, and work the way they work because at some point state government wrote a piece of legislation that says, mm. you know, now we can have business improvement districts. Here's how they operate. You know, mm. here's how their boards work. Here's how they're allowed to fund themselves, all those kinds of things. And so like that, if you want to uh, enact some change, uh, changing that legislation is probably one of the most powerful ways to affect the entire ecosystem at mm. once. Mm. Now, of course, you have to be very careful because <laughs> you can uh, you can disrupt the whole ecosystem at once, too. But yeah. I think creating a process where feedback is able to be given by mm. Um, mm. all of the actors involved. Uh, and then thoughtfully uh, making changes as you go along to to that legislation could be a very powerful way to have a big impact yeah. to both make it um, make these organizations uh, more effective and able mm -hmm. to do their work more easily uh, and also to make them more accountable in some cases too. Yeah, but but like within within this uh, ecosystem, can mm -hmm. can I as a, let's say individual not I don't belong to any organization. Can I have a, a power? Can I have a word on a place or no? I'm not like really have this kind of power. Right. The, again, yeah, totally. That's that's uh, the heart of it in a lot of ways. I think um, the answer is that typically uh, there's nothing in the way these organizations are structured or the way the rules work that says that that must be the case. Mm. And so it it varies a lot from organization to organization. Some organizations, you know, like the ones that we work with in our projects typically are really passionate about involving a lot of people in the process from around the community, from mm. different perspectives, um, you know, different skill sets to uh, different things to bring to the table. Um, but then some aren't. And, and there isn't a ton of, there aren't a ton of rules that say you mm. must do this. Um, and that's partly because I think it's hard to write those kinds of rules. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so you, you don't often have that much power in some areas, uh, in order to be renewed, these organizations have to go through a public review. Mm. Um, so that's sort of a moment for democratic, uh, involvement, yeah. but, um, but even then it's like, as we know, like a lot of these public meetings, it's like, not a lot of people show up to them. Exactly. It's, it's the usual suspects. They have their usual access to grind. And so how do you bring in more people into that conversation and make it more accessible, more mm. understandable, more interesting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's that, that's one of the huge challenges. But it, again, in the best instances, these organizations do this better, I would argue, than government does sometimes in mm. terms of, you know, not just doing a public meeting, not just doing a vote once, 
but engaging their yeah. community in an ongoing basis, mm. right? Um, that's that's really where I think trust can be built is mm -hmm. though that kind of ongoing relationship building with the community and not just a one-off. Yeah. Do you, do you think uh, um, like tech and uh, digitalization can help to bring the voice of people? Uh, the digitization? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think it can. Um, I think that you always need a real mix of tools. And mm. so I think that digitization is one way that you can broaden the audience, but it's also a specific audience. Yeah. And so you need to combine that with, sure, a public meeting that's that's maybe a specific mm. time and place. Also, you know, there are so many other analog ways like intercept surveys, just showing up in a place mm. and asking people, uh, you know, a few specific questions or um, you know, I, I, one of my favorite examples recently from the pandemic was, uh, in Oakland, California, uh, they did this really amazing, robust, um, open streets program. And in order to get feedback on it at one point, they decided to do phone banking like you would for, <laughs> you know, a politician. And so they literally just got their staff together and called okay. random people out of the phone book <laughs> in Oakland and said, what do you think about this? Wow. And it's like, that's like I feel like that's the type of stuff where then you're really actually getting to people who aren't even interested in this exactly and saying like what do you think about this because I think a lot of the controversies that arise mm. in our cities right now around development housing yeah. all these kinds of things it's because it's the same people that are part of the conversation again and exactly again and, again. Yeah. Yeah. and most people actually probably don't have super strong feelings about it but if you're able to collect that data you could say well actually mm. like 75% of people are fine with this yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah, whatever yeah. right um, exactly and and it's really like 25 percent that feels strongly one way or the other or yeah. whatever whatever the numbers would be but i think thinking broadly about about the different tools at your disposal is important mm. if from your work with the pps what what do you see like in let's say in, in general because like in sweden uh, during the the pandemic we we were digital like uh, all mm -hmm. the surveys and community engagement activities and so on uh, but then directly after COVID, we kind of stopped using the digital tools and we are like back to the physical one. But now it's like a lot of, um, you know, like there is a new AI tool here and there. So what do you see? Like, are you, are there like a lot of um, digital tools being used? More, more digital or no, like more physical? Mm -hmm. I think in terms of engagement, uh, we've definitely also swung back towards more physical. Um, you know, we've always had a digital component, especially in terms of, uh, you know, we have we like to create like a project website if, if mm. you know, the our, our partners are, are game with that and have online surveys. So you can mm. always go to the site and see the latest information, participate in a survey, all of that kind of stuff and making that really transparent and accessible. Um, but, you know, we we're back to traveling to sites, having in-person meetings. Uh, conversations uh, with with stakeholders and interviews with stakeholders. Um, I think part of that is is that we really feel that an important outcome of placemaking is strengthening the relationships and the mm -hmm. trust, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that work happens in person. So as much as, yeah, you could get all the same information virtually, <laughs> but being in the room with them and building that relationship yeah. and like, do you get lunch after? Do you walk down the street after yeah. or before or whatever? All of that sort of stuff, uh, you can't, you can't um, make, you can't it, really replicate that. Yeah. And so I think that that's a really important part of it as well. Um, mm. But 
I think, you know, in terms of working with our partners, especially when we're not close by, a lot more of that is happening in virtual meetings. And so I think that that's been one of the big shifts we've seen. But do you see, let's say, like in in 50 years from now, do you see that we are more in the digital world or no still on the face to face? I I think we're still Still face to face. I I think what I would say is that um, this is just a personal opinion, but I think that the... Um, you know, the whole idea of the metaverse, I don't think that people really want that. We tried it before. There's, there have been, you know, the, like second life was a thing when I was in university, I remember doing classes in second life. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's like, that was really, really interesting to a very small subset of people. And so it's great that it exists. And and we have like online games too, that, that, that now really have all these awesome social components. I think that's great mm-hmm. in some ways. Uh, but I think that ultimately there's still going to be no replacement for real life. Um, and I think that if anything, I could see augmented reality being something that that is more common where, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, we're all here together in person, but then there's also digital components that we're experiencing, you know, in real time with us in the space. Mm-hmm. But I think people are still going to want to be together in space, um, I, yeah. you know, a lot of the digital sort of changes that we've seen, I think, have come with really steep mental health costs. Mm, and mm. Um, so even though some of these things have happened, it's like, you know, there's more worry, I think, about like teenagers that are coming up right now with a lot of digital influence and mm. trying to figure out like what's the right balance and how do you stay connected? And, you know, it goes back to that whole thing about like building trust and relationships exactly. in person. Yeah. I think that you you can't totally do that and feel satisfied when it's only digital. Mm, interesting reflection. And like back to the book, you have like a specific chapter uh, about like supporting the, the ex- like people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, within this huge ecosystem and a big organization <laughs> and so on, then you have like this very soft and beautiful uh, chapter. Mm. So what, why, why you, what, what kind of message you want to deliver by having this chapter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, this, with that chapter, we were really, um, we wanted to dig into a very specific issue. Mm. Um, it's like what I was saying about tugging on a thread, right? Um, this is a challenge that in the United States, especially a lot of, uh, places are, are dealing with, right? Yeah. And there's sort of two ends to it. One is the sort of big picture, which is that, people don't have housing, right? Or don't have access to housing in one way or another. It may be purely financial. It may be also because of mental health or addiction challenges. There's lots of elements to that big picture. Mm. And then the from the standpoint of these place governance organizations, uh, often they they are, are there are people experiencing homelessness on the street, in the park, um, that are in the spaces that they're responsible for, and they may not have the um, expertise in-house to uh, address that in a way that's compassionate and effective. Mm. And so they're looking for partners. And um, sometimes that leads to you know, uh, working with the police and uh, depending on what the police's sort of response is locally, mm. it may be just displacing those people or arresting them. Um, some, some places have different programs with the police. Uh, and in other places, which is is where we were really focused, uh, is where a place governance organization is collaborating with a social service provider mm. and trying to really understand how their programs work and how they can support that broader uh, picture of solving the homelessness crisis, right? 
Um, so for example, in Atlanta, we worked with um, Central Atlanta Progress um, mm. on a project where uh, we were improving a downtown park and there were a lot of people experiencing homelessness there. And so they started by collaborating with uh, another organization called Hope Atlanta that specializes in social services. And you know, in Atlanta, they have a whole, what they call a continuum of care, which is basically okay. saying, um, trying to track uh, how a person experiences the whole spectrum of social services from, you know, first uh, from prevention to, you know, contacting a social worker to being mm. in a shelter to finding housing and then being sort of out of the system. And so the, it's fairly developed there. So what we were able to do was uh, we, we started getting a social worker that could actually work in the park. Basically, that was all she did. Yeah. Um, and she got to know all of the folks who were there mm. on a very personal level every day showing up, talking to them. Yeah. And when they were ready, she would try to offer um, a connection to mm. a program or to shelter. Um, and through that, she was able to actually, uh, you know, make a lot of connections every day, but then also place people into permanent housing. You know, mm. I, I believe it was hundreds of people actually wow. in, into permanent wow. housing. Yeah. Um, and then many more into programs and all of this. And so, mm. uh, Again, that goes back to this this point about she was able to show up again and again and Building, um, uh, and actually build those relationships, mm -hmm. that trusting mm -hmm. relationship in person with people. Yeah. Um, and we also actually created a space uh, that was designed with the folks who were already there in mind. Mm. So we put, we created a game cart and seating in the area where those folks were already kind of congregating. Um, and that was a place where they were they were welcome. They were sort of part of the part of the life of the space yeah. um, and and there there was design with dignity there um, and so that was also part of the idea was to also just destigmatize this idea that um, we should be afraid of of people in public space right yeah, yeah and just say you know well they're using the public space too and so how do we create a space where that feels like mm. there there's no conflict there yeah so that was that was a big part of that project as well um, but I, you know, to come back to this idea of place governance, the key point is this is one specific issue, mm. and when you start tugging on it, you start to see where the connections are and True. how how you you need to think about multiple scales. You need to think yeah. about yeah. all of the people that you need to connect with in order to make something happen. Because a lot mm. of these challenges are tricky um, yeah. and have big implications for equity. Mm. No, I, I find it very interesting that like you you you've, you highlighted this this challenge. And it's very important that we don't really read a lot about it. So I, I, mm. I, I see this like it's it's when I was reading the different chapters, then I saw this. I was like, well, this is this is amazing. So really good job that you you have this as a as a focus as well. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Do you believe that there is like, uh, let's say, after after collecting all the text and putting together a book? Do you see that there is one solution or model that fits all or no? There should be specific solution model programming to different areas, challenges and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, definitely in the U.S. context, I think that we need a lot of different types of tools. Um, and that is partly just because we already have a lot of different types of tools. <laughs> and so it would be really hard to kind of rein it all in and say, now you're all going to do this. And, mm. you know, your jurisdictions don't overlap anymore. You're responsible for this area. You're responsible mm. for that area. Um, there is just a kind of messy overlapping. And I yeah. think that we need to uh, embrace the the sort of benefits of that. 
um, while mitigating the worst parts of it, yeah. right? Because again, at its best, it's like, that means that, yeah, you there is someone else working in your area who has expertise you don't. So let's try to make those connections happen mm. and try to fill the gaps where there's no, nothing, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think around the world though, again, the structures are so different and I'm not an expert in that, but I think, uh, you know, where government is more involved in these kinds of tasks, mm. then the answer might be different. Um, yeah. And maybe you do have almost like little mini municipal governments uh, at the <laughs> at the um, district level that are providing yeah. a wide variety of services. Yeah. Um, that that could happen too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. So, who are you targeting with with the book? Who is the, your target audience? Yes. So we're really we tr we're trying to reach sort of a crossover audience with this. Um, it's written in such a way that it is ideally uh, accessible to practitioners. Okay, it's not cool. like super academic in the way it's written <laughs> for the most part. Uh, lots of case studies. Mm. Um, but we're also looking at policymakers too, because again, it's you have to have both if you're trying yeah. to access this whole ecosystem. Um, and students as well of uh, you know political science or all of that mm. that might be looking to go into one of these fields. Yeah. So So like... What is your your dream with 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 this book? If you if you if you like if you dream now and you have this mm -hmm. book, what what is your dream? What my dream for this would be, I think really what we've written is kind of a baseline. It's mm -hmm. a way of taking stock of where we're at. Mm -hmm. And so what I would love to see is I would love to see people take it and run with it, right? And write write another book that is you know, talking about innovations in this field more, because we have some great examples of innovations, but like really focusing in on what are the best practices mm. and the, the, you know, that kind of stuff, or taking some of those initial suggestions that I had about like, um, you know, collecting data and all of that and running with that and, and show it showing that, you know, yes, a city can do this. Like, I, I would just love to see um, more people kind of take this information and do what they will with it and, and move forward with it. Mm. Interesting. Uh, you send me later also the link for the book so people can order it and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me like more about uh, how many pages um, are there like uh, images like more uh, describe the book. That's... Yeah, absolutely. I have it with me right now. Okay, cool, so, cool. That's um, good. Yeah, so it is uh, 257 pages, um, okay. not including the appendix. <laughs> 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 um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's mostly text, but we do have some diagrams throughout oh, and mm -hmm. sort of some typographical things to make it a little bit more, um, easy to digest. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it comes in paperback. It comes in ebook as well. Oh, cool. Um, you can probably the easiest way to get a hold of it is to go to brookings.edu slash book slash hyperlocal. Um, that's that from there, you can find all the different other ways that you can get at it. Um, I know within the U.S. you can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it uh, via Amazon. Uh, but on that site, you can also find <clears throat> who publishes it and distributes it around the world as well. Yeah. So that's, that's I know great. for your audience that may be an important uh, factor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, what was the 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 best moment of of making this book for you? Right. Yeah. So I mean, like I said, because this happened during the pandemic, so much of it was virtual, and um, a lot of it was really happening via email and reviewing documents and all that kind of stuff. So um, at one point, though, once we had all the chapters, we decided to do a, a symposium with yeah. all of the chapter authors okay. where they could sort of uh, present their their chapter, mm. get feedback from the other authors. We had outside reviewers as well, uh, cool. both, you know, other researchers, but also practitioners. Mm. Um, and 
and from there that that was just like a really wonderful opportunity to be like oh my god this book is real <laughs> and like these the, these people that that have been producing this awesome work i actually got to meet them and talk to yeah, them yeah, and it, yeah. it just felt like you know suddenly we were part of this community which mm, uh, mm. was really fulfilling so that yeah. that was probably my highlight of the process of actually just putting the book together yeah that's amazing and what was like the most let's say i don't know if i should say annoying or tough <laughs> moment <laughs> yeah i mean i think part of part of the challenge for us was just that um there wasn't a lot written that we could find about this very broad topic mm. there's lots written about little uh, nooks and crannies of it, but it felt like we were kind of um, stepping out into a big mm. uh, void and, and <laughs> just trying to figure, like, feel our way out. And so yeah. I think there probably are like oversights. There are probably, you know, things that like other people might, you know, I mean, I was saying I'd love for people to react to this and do things. You know, there may also be people who might want to have a rebuttal to this and say, actually, you got it totally wrong. But I, mm. I hope we started a conversation. Yeah. So that that was probably the hardest part is just. Uh, feeling like we might be stepping out on a limb a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, as as you know, like pe people working with city development, they always have ideas and want to create something and put it on paper. What mm -hmm. are your like, uh, let's say, three advices of how we start writing a book or writing something? Like, what should we really think about and, and keep in mind? Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. Three advice for writing a book. Um. I think uh, with nonfiction, there's a remarkable amount of nonfiction books that probably should have just been an essay, <laughs> you know, like a good, a really great article. Um, okay. And so I think that, you know, I would say start by writing, you know, something shorter and, okay. you know, often like you'll read a nonfiction book and that first chapter is really that essay. And then yeah. the rest of the book is just a bunch of examples. <laughs> and so um, sometimes that's great and you need those other examples. And sometimes it feels like I got I got the gist of it in that first <laughs> chapter. So I think I definitely think, you know, there's nothing wrong with with thinking small because sometimes mm. those ideas travel yeah. way further than a book can. Um, so that would be my first thought. Um, I would say related to that, you know, feeling out the chapters is, is important as well of like, mm. for us, it was really these key questions that we wanted to answer. Um, and, you know, for you, it might be specific examples or case studies, um, or it might be something else entirely. Maybe it is more of a narrative. There are some of the great nonfiction books are also uh, personal stories, right? Or um, a story of someone like sort of unraveling a mystery or things mm. like that. Um, so I think figuring out the structure of the book is great. And if you can't think of one, maybe it should be an article, <laughs> right? Um, and then I, I think also just surrounding yourself with uh, great people as well, that mm. people that can help you think through things, talk yeah. through things, who can review, who can help you answer those questions, or maybe write some of those articles or, or chapters <laughs> rather in the book. Yeah. Like, I think that that's also really important. So yeah. Um, that's not a comprehensive guide to writing a book, but, but those are some of the key things for yeah, me. Yeah, learning, uh, key learnings from you. So, because also when I do a podcast, sometimes people uh, tell me like, who am I so that people can listen to my ideas or, mm -hmm. or maybe my idea is so stupid. What, what, what is your reflection about this? I think, I mean, you know, again, I, because I believe in, uh, you know, democratic engagement, yeah. I think that, um, it's always worth putting your idea out there and putting your yeah. idea in conversation with other people, okay. right? But I think that that's where 
you can kind of test it out. And, and usually mm -hmm. there's a nugget of something there that's interesting. You may be surprised to hear that like lots of other people have had that experience or felt I'll that way that. or recognize that as a mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. um, or you might, you might get people who say, yeah, I don't think that's quite <laughs> right, but then at least, you know, right. And you can move on yeah. or you can adjust it or all of that. But I think that's the key is, is put it out there, but, but be willing to put it into conversation with people too. Yeah, I, I think so. Also, like like put it out there, test it, and and be be how to say be ready to get like a good feedback or negative feedback, mm -hmm. uh, and all of this. But like put it, we need we need so different voices to inspire each other. Right. Exactly. Because because sometimes you know again we do need to go out on a limb uh, and take a chance that like you know maybe you got it wrong that first time, but now we can talk about it. Right. E exactly. Interesting. So no, I'm I'm very happy that we talked about the book and uh, you inspire me so much and in this podcast we we talk about like cities for people about the projects the books and so on at the same time we talk about people behind cities for people so we talk more about now i'm going to talk about you all right so uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so my first question is what do you love people to say about you to tell about you when they read your name 100 years from now like in the far far future Oof. all right <laughs> um yeah i mean i think i do hope that people remember me as someone that you know was always making the case for why cities should be more democratic you know because mm. it's kind of an easy thing to say in some ways but um i think especially right now there's so much pushback on nimbyism right which I understand. And, and, and right now it feels so baked into the way we do community engagement and all of this. But my argument for that is that the problem is that there's not enough democracy. Mm. It's not that there's too much democracy. I think there's a kind of a bit of a pushback to say, well, maybe the experts should really just take care of this. And we should stop having these community meetings where people are pushing back on it. Mm. And my feeling is like, well, maybe we should hop on the phone and talk to random people out of the phone book, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But we, we need to engage more people in the process who uh, don't really know that much about yeah. this stuff and don't already have an axe to grind. Um, so I hope that I'm able to push that forward in my life and that people will remember me for that. Yeah, yeah. And about like uh, your career, na name one thing that you did and you're super proud of, and then one did one one thing you did and you're you regret. Not not like not necessary okay. career, but like even maybe during your studies and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel like um, one of my my sort of highlights in my career was uh, we did a placemaking week conference in Chattanooga, Tennessee, back in 2019. Yeah. And I was just part of the team for that, I should say. It was not not all me by any means. We have a wonderful director of events who who was sort of the lead person on that. But I helped put the program together, um, was a big advocate for doing it in Chattanooga and with the partners that we had there. And um, it was just such an amazing experience, you know, much like we had in Pontevedra as mm. well, of just bringing together all of the folks that, that do this work from around the world. Um, feeling like we're all part of one thing, like we found our people, you know, in this world and uh, and just coming away so inspired, yeah. um, both by the the actual place that we were in and the what what was going on there, the challenges they were facing and the and the way they were they were sort of innovating to try to face those challenges. And then also all the other people who bring, 
they're amazing stuff as well. So that that's probably one of the highlights of my mm. career. I'm, and I'm, I'm super excited because we're, I'll put in a short plug here. We're, <laughs> um, we are actually seeking our next uh, host city for a placemaking week in 2024. So wow. if you think your city might be a good fit. Yeah, yeah. Please, please check out uh, the placemaking week website, which is, I just believe placemakingweek.org. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably one of my that's highlights. Amazing. And then yeah. something I, I sort of regret or, yeah. or feel, you yeah. know, that was challenging. I mean, I feel like early on in my career, I was super ambitious <laughs> and didn't always have the sort of project management skills to back it up. <laughs> And I, and I feel like I learned a lot in the first few years of just being out of school about just how to get things done and, mm. and follow through on all of your ambitions and, and also like know when something is too much to bite off uh, at the beginning. So I have lots of like, you know, uh, projects that were sort of not at, at, at the high level that I wanted them to be mm. or, um, or, you know, that didn't, didn't even come to fruition, stuff like that, that I, I wish... I, I kind of had a better handle on how to get it done or whether it should happen at all yeah. um, to really, to really, you know, follow through and all of that. But now I feel like I've, I've got a good handle on it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if, if you take us back in time, like uh, to your childhood and so on, um, mm -hmm. how were you as a kid? Like how were you, how do you grow up? How was the place you grew up in? Yeah. So I grew up, I grew up in Kitchener, Ontario, uh, in a pretty suburban neighborhood. It was surprisingly walkable, but because it was like an it was an old suburb, um, <laughs> and you know I was not very good at school. Uh, you know, had a very small group of friends that were like really really mm. close friends, but like didn't wasn't popular in school. Struggled mm. a lot, and then uh, and then in high school I got the opportunity to go to it was a public school, but it had a, an arts program, and okay. that probably changed my life just mm. in terms of finding people that I really got along with, finding classes that I could do really well in. Yeah. Um, and that kind of set me on a better path in terms of um, doing well in school and having having like a good group of friends and all of that. And um, and yeah, I, I ended up going to art school and and all of that. So that was that was probably that's that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> and what do what do you do now for uh, for hobbies? Ah, so I have like a lot of weird sort of geeky hobbies, but uh, <laughs> I actually have a, a sort of very small podcast. <laughs> you have that, no. yeah, which is focused on um, the movies that are parodied on The Simpsons. <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> so it's a total total sidebar from I, what I do. I, in I my thought you're gonna job. say like public spaces or something like that. <laughs> no, no, I, I I do like to have like a good a good work life balance, and so. You know, when I'm at work, I am working my butt off yeah. and uh, and I am super passionate about what I do, but I also like to have things that are very separate and like completely different. Um, so, yeah, I actually I do this podcast with a friend that I've known since high school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we used to love The Simpsons back then. Yeah, and and yeah, now yeah. We, we also love movies. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, we kind of are using using it as a way to discover new stuff to watch and have those conversations yeah. we've always had. What, what's what's uh, the name of the podcast? Uh, it's called uh, the Springfield Googleplex, <laughs> which is the name of the movie theater in in uh, The Simpsons. How how many episodes? So far, it's very short. We've done we've only done one season in last fall, so we have I think seven seasons or sorry eight uh, eight episodes I think out. 
Okay. Uh, cool, and we're cool. working on a second season that's going to be that's uh, all focused on musicals. Okay. Because, um, uh. you know, it's a big part of the DNA of The Simpsons. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but so so you, you really get like um, your energy charge when you do something else than what you do at work, like change, mm -hmm. completely change the topic, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I like I love to do. I've always had side hustles and and things like that that are often very much about making something. Okay. Um, uh. And so I used to I used to do a lot of um, coding and making video games when I was like nice. in high school and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, you know, creating websites and doing photography and just all sorts of different things. So I I really like to have that time to really you know get deep into editing some audio, for example, or doing research on a new topic. That's that's the stuff. I love finding time to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, sometimes it's uh, hard to find time when you're so passionate about your work. Mm -hmm. But it's good that you Definitely. make time to do something else. Definitely. I mm. yeah, I had um an advisor in grad school named Steve Steve Lubar, great guy. Yeah. Yeah. And um one of the things that he he really impressed upon us cuz we were a lot of us were going into the nonprofit world, going yeah. into the arts world. And there is so much pressure, I think, to be all in on your work yeah. and really make it your full life, work lots of overtime. And he sort of said, you know, make sure to sort of own your time, right? Mm. And recognize when you are working overtime, make it clear to your employer when you're working overtime okay. and guard yeah. that because if you don't, no one else is going to. That's true. And I've always... I've always taken that very seriously because I do think I do think I'm better at my work when I am taking my work life balance mm, seriously. Mm, mm. Um, and so I, I try to do that in my own life. And I try to do that. Um, I try to build a culture of that in at Project for Public Spaces as well with my co-executive director, who I think feel similarly that it's, you know, when we're at work, we're at work. But when we're at home, we They're need to home, also yeah. recharge and do other things and mm. be with our families and our friends and, and all of that and experience the world. You know, yeah, that makes yeah. us more complete people yeah what other hobbies you have other hobbies uh right now i'm working a lot with uh my alumni network uh from uh brown which is kind of fun um <laughs> you know i uh i also i do love movies so i go to movies a lot with my wife mm. um love to to bike um so i i'm often out on uh the awesome uh bike paths that we have where i live we have these these paths that go all up and down the Delaware River to all the different yeah. like small towns in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So uh, that's that's been great since we moved here to take advantage of. Um, so, yeah, kind of just a wide cool, variety cool. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But like movies, um, do you have like a specific uh, type of, of, of movies you like to watch or no, like ah, any yes. kind of. Uh... Yeah, I, I mean, I love I do love sort of sci fi ish movies, but. Um, you know, one of my favorite directors is actually Sergio Leone, who's uh, most famous probably for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. <laughs> but he he also did a lot of other really cool, weird movies. Um, you know, he, like uh, he he had a whole trilogy at the end of his life that was uh, called like the Once Upon a Time trilogy. So he okay. did Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time uh... in America, and once a, and then the other one was going to be called Once Upon a Time in the Revolution. But it got uh, renamed "Duck You Sucker." <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they're really they're really cool yeah, movies yeah, and, and yeah. Uh, have such a unique perspective, I guess. Mm. Um, so so what, that, what is the what is the like uh, next movie that you you're gonna watch? 
Are you waiting uh, for some specific one? Uh, so the next one that I know I'm going to watch uh, is is for the podcast, and it's a really weird <laughs> cut. It's a movie called uh, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> so that's a, it's a, it was like a really popular movie in the 1980s. It has okay. Dolly Parton and uh, mm. Burt Reynolds. And it's about uh, it's about a brothel that op- that was this is a true story a brothel that operated in Texas illegally for like seventy five yeah. years and was finally shut down by a uh, an intrepid reporter. Um, so it's a musical. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then. <laughs> so how and how is your uh, daily routine? What time do you wake up? What do you do? How do you go to work? Like, take mm-hmm. us through through your day. Sure. So um, I I usually wake up around seven. We have two cats, so they they never let me sleep in. (laughs) Got to wake up and feed them. Um, You know, typically in the morning, I like to work out. Um, We have uh, just an exercise bike. So I usually hop on that uh, for about half an hour, Hmm. um, have breakfast. uh, And then usually I start my work day around nine and I go to the coffee shop. Um, Okay. So we work, uh, we were fully remote office. Um, so, so, so I like there is to, no no office. We yeah exactly. We're fully remote. What? Um, we do have we're we're now doing some more co working. Um, okay. Like so you know we're all kind of scattered around the New York area, so we can still kind of get together in person. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I like to go to the coffee shop in the morning to just kind of feel like I have a commute, right? And sort of yeah. set <laughs> set it off and say, all right, now I'm at work. Now open, um, yeah. Work there for for the morning, and uh, I kind of have focused time in the morning. So I do that, and then I come home. Usually have my first meeting around eleven, and then mm. usually a lot of meetings throughout the day uh, <laughs> in my role. Yeah, uh, but you know that's 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 good too. I mean, mm. it's it's mm. nice to be to feel connect connected, even though you are um, working remotely. Um, so yeah, and then in the evening, we almost always cook dinner. Um, that's, I guess that's another hobby of mine. I do love cooking and amazing uh, learning new recipes and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and in the evening, just, uh, hang out my, you know, we, we sometimes watch TV or work on other hobbies and stuff like that. Yeah. My wife is a big, um, sewer, so nice. she's, she's often working on a project and I'm working on some other yeah, project. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much my day. And what, what time do you sleep? Uh, typically probably like 10 30 or so. Okay. That's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Try to, try to get a good night's sleep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's important. I'm getting older. <laughs> no, but it, it's very important. Like, uh, some people think I'm one of the people thinks that, okay, I can, I want to stay up all the day, you know, do stuff, but like sleep is so important. It is, it is. And, and during the week I'm, I'm very, I've become kind of a stickler about it. We, uh, <laughs> only let our cats into the bedroom on the weekend because they sleep better when they're not there, you know, like all of that. Uh, but I'm also lucky to have a partner that really keeps me honest about all of this yeah. because we kind of have our shared values that mm. we, uh, you know, around like food and and time and mm. work-life balance and sleep and it's all really of that. Good. And we're very good at like whenever we're sort of slipping off yeah, yeah. <laughs> to just kind of be like, hey, you know, we should, we both agreed that we like this and, you know, we should, we should stick to it. That's so. really good. Yeah. That's really good. But I didn't know that you you don't have office in a PPS. Like it's one of the world's most popular and successful and important <laughs> organization. Then you don't have an office. Yeah, it's true. I mean, during the pandemic, we got rid of ours. Um, How like many, many are you people. in the team? We are 11. Um, okay, so we're yeah. small, small but yeah, mighty. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we got rid of it during the pandemic. Um, and 
you know, because we weren't we weren't going in for like a full year, and it was mm. it was frankly it was expensive, um, and so you know now uh, I think we we all recognize that we would like to be together more in person and and have more time collaborating in person. Yeah, but uh, that there's sort of a balance to be struck. Okay. Um, a lot of workplaces you're hearing, you know, they're like, all right, you have to come in on Wednesdays. Yeah, exactly. And, and it can feel kind of arbitrary, mm, right? Mm. And I think a lot of employees are annoyed about that. So our approach has been that we, the heads of our departments have access to co-working space. Yeah. And they have credits that they can invite their uh, team to come and meet. Mm. And if you if you come to a meeting, then you can stay all day at the, at the co-working space, yeah. basically. Um, and so we're, we're sort of testing that out and seeing how that works, but it means mm -hmm. that teams can really decide uh, when they want to be together in person and really make the most of that time. And we'll also build in probably some, some moments for all of us to come together as a team for yeah. staff meetings and, and social events and that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. we, want, we want people to feel like it's not a chore to be together in person, but really value that time that we have together. Yeah, exactly. We but maybe some might argue that this is going to affect the team building, like the, the total team team feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're lucky that we, we have a lot of folks who have been there for a long time. And mm. so we're, in some ways, I think we are able to take advantage of that those long yeah. relationships that we did have in person. Yeah. But um, when we have uh, brought on new staff, one of the things that we do is we do make sure to meet together in person yeah. um, and make sure that we spend some of that time together um, and also have some of those social events uh, mm. and and days where we're, you know, we actually, uh, I think maybe the last one we did was we went to a new public space in New York City together and actually did our evaluation of the space uh, together as a team just to nice. kind of yeah. feel connected yeah, yeah. to the mission and um, and just have some fun together. So yeah. we're trying to build in those moments too. That's amazing. So so tell me, like now it's one year of you being a co-executive director. Mm -hmm. what challenges you faced and then tell me what are your goals for this year we start with challenges sure. yeah so i mean i think um in terms of challenges you know i think that to be honest like the pandemic was tough uh for mm. for us as an organization and uh you know i think a lot of a lot of sort of these public projects that we're often involved in they were on pause and all of that so we're we're kind of uh we spent a lot of time like really refining what mm. we're doing and honing in on what is the core of our mission what's the core of our programs yeah so we're we're like we're now now we have our direction and we're really trying to just execute on that yeah um so like last year for example um was the first time that we did both of our our key trainings online fully mm. online wow um and so that was like a that was a really big lift and we had to adapt a lot of stuff to to that new format but the mm. result was was amazing i mean we those in-person trainings we did uh, were great, but we were only able to reach, say, like 30 people. Yeah. And um, through the virtual training, we were able to reach 175 people wow. per training. That's good. Um, you know, and mm. and from around the world, right, at a lower cost. So yeah. I think I think that we've we're starting to find some some like new ways of working that yeah. uh, that are really exciting. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been challenging to just try to. Uh, find this new path that that's going to work for us and mm. um, and make sure that we're following through on all of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And and on a personal level for you, what what mm. are your challenges? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I can be a very anxious person sometimes. <laughs> so I definitely think you know, uh, in this line of work, there is a lot of uncertainty, 
right? That's just the reality of it is mm. you don't know um, what uh, requests for proposals are going to come up. You don't know, um, you know, whether every partner you have is going to be able to renew, all those kinds of things. And so um, it can be very stressful. But I think that the thing that I've found is is just trying to focus on the things that you do have control over mm. is the best antidote for me of of getting too anxious about it is yeah. saying like, okay, that's all out there, but I can, I there's, this is what I can control and this is what I can't. Mm. And so I'm just going to not focus on the stuff yeah. that I can't control and start working on the stuff mm. that I, mm. I can control. Mm. Um, so that's been, that that's probably <laughs> the hardest part for me is just yeah. keeping my anxiety level uh, in check. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, what are your goals for the 2023? Yeah, so for 2023, um, we have a fantastic conference coming up in June. Uh, it's the 11th International Public Markets Conference in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So um, really excited about that. And um, we're going to be uh, putting a lot of energy into that at the first half of the year, obviously. Um, so making that a, a success is a big goal. Um, I'm I'm also personally very excited about finding our next uh, host for the, yeah. the um, Placemaking Week conference. Yeah. Um, and starting to work on that. Nice. Um, and then, you know, largely, uh, I think one of the big goals is just we're we're constantly looking for new partners um, to help us uh, fund improvements to public spaces. So yeah. we we partner with foundations, we partner with corporations uh, to provide grants as well as technical mm. assistance to mm. to improve public spaces. Um, and so we have lots of great partners that we're working with right now, but we're always on the hunt for for new yeah. folks that are like-minded to work with. So that's a big focus too. Amazing, amazing. So I wish you all the good luck in your in your work. And as I mentioned, I'm always I'm following you, so I always like happy to see like the latest updates. So shout out to to the entire team as well. Good, really good job. Thanks so much. Yeah, and thanks for having me on the show. This was a great conversation. Yeah, and now we are. In the last chapter and there are mm -hmm. three uh, questions so the first one is that you give a message to yourself all right message to myself um yeah i think you know kind of going back to that uh feeling about you know anxiety and all that uh i'll, I'll give us i'll give myself a message that uh we have in one of our, our sort of key articles about placemaking which is you can't do it alone mm. and it's it's really easy to put um, all of the sort of stress of the world on yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's important to remind yourself that, you know, you do have like an awesome team of people, both the people that you work with, but also the people in your life that um, that can take some of that weight off and, and are in it with you. So I think I'll say that. And I think it's good advice for everyone to just remember that there are, you have lots of people around you and, um, you yeah. know, you can lean on them when you need to. Yeah. And... Uh takeaway messages to our listeners sure okay so um i would say yeah if we want to create a stronger public realm um which is of course the mission for project for public spaces um we really do need to start thinking about that whole ecosystem of actors that care for it you know i think um care is one of those parts of placemaking that I that sometimes can get overlooked because I think a lot of us get into it for the transformation part where yeah. it's like you know oh this place was was really you know not well used and kind mm. of sad looking and all of that and now we're going to transform it and that's that's really exciting but then you know what happens after that um you know and and 
who did you engage and did they have the capacity to maintain it and to keep evolving it over time? I think that that's, that's one of the big questions. Um, and so, so that's one, that's one uh, yeah. message to take away. Um, another one that I would say from the book is that, uh, and I got into this a little bit, I think, but just that there's really no separation between the ethical stuff and the practical stuff, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, you know, again, if governance is really all about decision-making, mm. um, we make all sorts of decisions all the time. Yeah. And we may often make them because they're expedient, right? Because it's it's convenient or it's easy or because we feel a lot of pressure to do it and it feels like a very practical decision. But all of those practical decisions also have ethical implications yeah. that we need to think yeah. about as well. So um, trying not to divide that is really tough. Yeah. Um, but but I do think it's really important if you're in an organization that cares mm. for a public space to really think about the ethical component of all of those little things that you decide, every mm. policy, every, um, you know, how you structure your budget, like yeah. all of those sort of boring little details have a big mm -hmm. impact on mm -hmm. on how people use in a public space, who feels welcome, all of that kind of stuff. True. Um, and then the last one I would say is, uh, you know, please check out Hyperlocal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you're working in this field, uh, whether you're a designer or you're a planner or you're, you work for an organization that cares for public space or you're a policymaker, I think you will find a lot in this book that will be useful uh, just to kind of better understand um, how these systems work and uh, a little bit of the history and a little bit of uh, the hope for the future too, right? Like what are yes. the possibilities uh, for this ecosystem to keep evolving? Yeah, uh, amazing. And the last question in this episode is going to be you asking it to us, to listeners. So what is your question? Okay, I think my question would be simply, um, who will care for this public space after you're gone? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Good question. So thank you so much. And hopefully we keep in touch and uh, we will record and hear more stories from you in the future. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. This was uh, really, really fun. Thank you.